Hey, what's going on? It's at the letters for Wednesday, April 19th, 2023. Arden Zwelling and Ben Nicholson Smith. Our producers are Christian Ryan and Nick Andrade. Ben, who says it's too early to look at Fangraphs playoff odds on Wednesday, April 19th, only two weeks into the season? The Toronto Blue Jays are a 20.3% chance to win the American League East. New York Yankees are 28.4% chance, so just above them. And then the Rays are 48.2% chance. So uh, basically, Ben, if you flip a coin at this point, Fangraph says that's the the equivalent of whether or not the Rays win the, the AL East. And I'm guessing that this time last week, those odds might have been a bit different before the Jays took two of three. Now, does Fangraphs have the odds for getting a first round buy because really you know winning the division is awesome that should be the goal but really what's going to improve your world series chances is getting the first round buy and not being the one division winner that ends up having to play a wild card team in the first round i don't see that uh on uh, the fangrass playoff odds page but i do know the blue jays cannot get that first round buy if they do not win the division so uh let's start there yeah, that's a good goal for the Jays, for sure. It was interesting having the Rays come into town this past weekend. The Jays are in the stretch now where they're playing some very good teams. And, you know, if this schedule that they're playing at the moment was in October, I don't think anyone would blink an eye to face the Rays, to face the Astros and the Yankees. I mean, that's a really tough test for this team early on. And they had a chance to sweep the Rays, didn't end up doing it. But I think they showed pretty convincingly that they belong Right at the top of that division, whatever the odds say right now, those are going to change a lot in the course of the next six months. We all expect that. But, you know, the Jays on talent, I think, are right there with the Rays um, based on what we saw this weekend. It's fun, man. It's fun getting these matchups early in in the year, seeing the the Jays test themselves against the Rays and the Astros here. And you got, you know, important Tuesday night baseball where Jordan Amano's getting four out saves. George Springer's hanging in for these like long, like grindy plate appearances where he's taking pitches just off the plate, still getting rung up on them, even though their balls uh, just wait until the, the Blue Jays go to the Bronx on the weekend. Maybe there's an Alec Manoa, Garrett Cole matchup in there that would be my interesting and then you got this little sort of lull next week with the white Sox in town and then boom seattle mariners back in town for a weekend set first visit back to rogers center since the wild card series last year so it's fun that the blue jays have these series now it's going to be really fun at the end of the year when the blue jays finish their schedule playing exclusively yankees and rays like literally look at the last two weeks of the regular season and the blue jays go to the bronx they go to the trot, and then the Yankees come to Rogers Center, followed by the Rays coming to Rogers Center. So that's the final 12 games of the season against those two opponents. So that's why these early season tests with the Rays and Yankees in a more balanced schedule environment are actually pretty important. They definitely are. You only face them four times. You only get so many chances to make up that head-to-head ground. You know, of course, like the narrative side of it is who can defeat these Rays? They're undefeated. The Jays did that. But these games do matter a lot. And I agree. I mean, it's a fun time of year just to be following the sport when you have these head-to-head matchups involving the Jays that are really compelling. You have two really good teams. I also think the Jays will really enjoy the stretches of the season where they're playing the Rockies and the Athletics or when they're playing the Reds and the Pirates. And, you know, those stretches are coming up. They really will have to make up ground there. But in the meantime, you know, on this road trip, for example, where they're currently in Houston, about to go to New York, 
I mean, if you go three and three, they're one and one as we record this podcast. If you go three and three on that road trip, you're probably okay with that, even if it means you're probably not gaining a ton of ground on the race. And the fact that it is those three teams with meaningful odds of winning the division, and we expect that to be the case for the rest of the season, is why these games are important the most because like these are the teams that you were contending with like you can't like it doesn't matter if you if the blue jays finish with a better record than the twins and then any team in the al central the blue jays can't win the al central they can only win the al east and blue jays need to win their division because you don't want to end up back in a freaking tchotchke like wild card series on a weekend and running into a hot luis castillo and then having like the wheels completely fall off the bus in game two like, you just don't want to expose yourself to that level of risk and that type of baseball being baseball happening to you so that's why these games are really important but i'll tell you this the blue jays aren't gonna win their division if they don't get better starting pitching than they've had to this point like i I promise you that they might (laughs) be a playoff team like they they could certainly get a wild card spot if you know their starting pitching is like a, a bottom 10 um era on the season you could probably sneak in but you're not going to win your division if you don't get better starts. And as we sit here right now, the Blue Jays starting pitching ERA is 5.55. That is 24th across MLB. So a bottom six mark for rotation ERA. It's a little bit maddening. It's a little bit like confounding. You would look at this team on paper and you would say starting pitching should be a strength but if there's one area you want to point to for why the blue jays have lost the games that they have it really does come back to this team's rotation yeah and it's remarkable because they're in a pretty good spot right now i mean record wise to be 11 and 7 as we record this that's pretty good they've had a lot of things go right the starting rotation by and large not in that category they've had their moments yusei kikuchi had an awesome start which we'll get to kevin gosman basically has been very good this year But collectively, the results have not been there. And I do think that with Alec Manoa in particular, they really need to get him on track. You know, you look at someone like Chris Bassett, and he seems to have steadied things um, based on what we've seen in his last three starts. If you include the splitter. And he gets Tucker. So five up and five down. A very good start so far tonight for Chris Bassett. Here's the one-two. There have been real strides. We're seeing a more comfortable pitcher out there. The results are better. Kikuchi, impossible to complain about what he did against what's so far been the best offense in baseball. But when I look at Manoa, it's just, it's puzzling. And there's a lot we can get to here. There are a lot of layers to this. There are a lot of causes potentially to it. But that's where I land. And I think that's the obvious place to start in discussing this rotation. Yeah, I want to get to Manoa more specifically, but like just thinking more globally about the Blue Jays rotation, like the thing they need to bleed out from their results right now are the disaster outings. Each one of these five Blue Jays starting pitchers has had a game in which they've given up six or more earned runs. You can give up four runs over five. Like you can give up, um, you know, five runs over six. And this offense honestly can can overcome that. But when you've got each guy who's had a half dozen earned runs in outing, those are the ones that you've got to get rid of. But in a strange way, like that does give me a little bit of optimism because like I was talking about last week, I expected Chris Bassett to be Chris Bassett going forward. And lo and behold, he has been. And that's a good thing because I gave him every mulligan that I had to give out last week and but he has been Chris Bassett going forward Kevin Gosman to me on the season has had one bad inning 
You take out that one really bad inning against the Astros and Kevin Gosman's been Kevin Gosman. So I expect him to continue to be that good going forward. Manoa, we're going to dive into. And then when it comes to Barrios and Kikuchi, those still remain the wild cards in this rotation in that I could see a very wide range of outcomes for them, either with the ERAs being quite low or quite high. But I do know the the big issue for Barrios last year was that he didn't suffer from those five innings, four earned runs outings. He suffered from those two or three innings, six or seven earned runs outings. It was the disaster ones for Brios and in, in you know, in, in some respects for Kikuchi as well when it came to walks and short outings. So for those guys, it's just gonna be about raising their floor. They don't have to be aces. They don't have to win Cy Young's, but if they can just get back closer to like in like league average innings eating territory that'll go a long way for the success of this team oh yeah i mean teams really value that as they as they should you know you look at the trade deadline every year you look at you know whatever it is taiwan walker or jameson tyone signing four-year deals at pretty nice aavs i mean those guys are kind of back-end starters like a number four starter really on a good team but teams really need pitchers like that and of course that's what the Jays would love to see from Yusei Kikuchi. When you get an outing like he had against the Rays, where he is striking guys out, he is attacking within the strike zone, his fastball is there, his breaking stuff is there, that's best case scenario. And again, the Rays, to this point in the season at least, have been an elite offensive team. They are really hitting. And Kikuchi, in spite of that, was able to get great results. Swing and a miss. Kikuchi gets Bruhan. That's eight strikeouts now for Yusei Kikuchi through four and a third. That's almost a bonus. If he's able to go out there and, like you said, provide five innings, three earned runs on a consistent basis, you're actually very happy with that if you're the Jays. And realistically, I mean, we talk about the contract a lot for a lot of these guys, but Kikuchi's contract, $36 million over three years, like, honestly, if you're the Jays, would you even want to get out from that contract right now? Like if you could, because I don't know if I would want to. And we know it was front loaded, right? The first year was 16 million. So now it's like 20 over two. But like, let's say a team approached you and said, we'll take on the Yusei Kikuchi contract. I don't think you're giving him up, which is kind of wild. But I think you'd actually rather have him on your team and hold on. I think that's entirely due to the lack of a replacement for him, though in the starting rotation. Like if you were the Oakland A's and you've got Mason Miller, like just knocking on the door with, you know, triple digit fastball velo and looking like clearly better than any pitcher on Oakland's staff. But I would say like somebody who could step in and be a number five for the blue Jays as well. Like then if a team showed up and said, Hey, we'll just take you say Kikuchi from you, dust your hands of it. We'll take the money, everything. Like you just erase them from the ledger and insert Mason Miller. Like, yeah, I honestly, I think the Blue Jays would do that, but they don't have Mason Miller knock on the door. The problem is that if you did let a team take you Kikuchi from you, it would be here's Zach Thompson or true Hutchison. Who's going to be starting every five days. Right. But I mean, with that being said, if a team said Jose Barrios, where we believe that we can turn him around, we'll take his contract. I think you're still doing that if you're the Jays, because I think it's such a big contract and it's not going to happen. Obviously, we're deep into hypotheticals here. But I think in that scenario, you figure it out. You figure it out at the trade deadline. You call up a Zach Thompson and you kind of make it work. The thing with Yusei Kikuchi is I remember last May 
you know, I remember those five starts that he had against good opposition, right? Against the Yankees twice, uh, the Mariners were in there, and it was like a two three six ERA that month, and it wasn't fluky, like a two six two FIP. Uh, the strike percentage up over sixty percent. It wasn't walking that many batters. He's striking out the world like he was, um, like he was him. <laughs> you say Kikuchi had like figured it out, and I'm sure we were all writing and talking about how all the Blue Jays helped him put it together, and like this is what it's going to be going forward after those early struggles after a shortened spring in April, and then like uh, six weeks later he was in the Blue Jays bullpen. So um, I'm probably going to need to see some more from you say Kikuchi. I'm also going to need some less hard contact on balls in play um i'm, I'm gonna need to see some more consistent strike throwing i'm gonna need to see a bit less of the cutter which is like crept back into that repertoire for him and can be an uncompetitive pitch and in, in certain counts depends how he's using it but you know i think it's definitely like positive what the blue jays have seen from you Kikuchi so far and like look if we you talk to us at the end of spring training we'd be like well Show us that you can carry it over into the regular season, right? And now here we are moving the goalposts again, right? At a certain point, we have to kind of accept that, like, the guy put in a ton of work, has made adjustments, and is seeing results for it. So, like, that's a very positive thing. But just for me, I'm going to want to see a bit more of a sample size before I'm, I'm sold here. For sure. And, and, you know, no one's saying that he's Clayton Kershaw. No one's saying that he's Julio Arias. Like, they, they just need him to be someone who's kind of capable and that includes in the course of 30 starts or you know 28 starts whatever he has remaining that includes some really bad starts he's entitled to that just as every pitcher on this staff is entitled to more really bad starts where the offense has to bail you out where the bullpen has to come in and pick up the pieces and that might happen his next time out but at least we're seeing that there is more conviction with the strike throwing we're seeing um, him in the zone more often and the results, I think, if it kind of continues at this pace where you have one okay one, one bad one, one good one, I think you're okay with that for the entire season if that's what it comes to. And of course, you're hoping for more. Of course, Pete Walker working behind the scenes to get even more out of Kikuchi. But if it does hold at this level, I think that's okay. Yeah, and if he ends up with like 150 innings at like a 4 or 5 ERA, uh, like you take that to the bank right now <laughs> yeah. if you're the Blue Jays. Uh, those are certainly not the expectations for Alec Manoa. The expectations for him are uh, you know, quite a bit higher in the innings pitch department, quite a bit lower in the ERA department, just considering what he did last year as a Cy Young finalist. But man, is he going through it early in, in the season now through four starts, 19 third innings pitched, 15 earned runs, 15 walks to 16 strikeouts boy i mean like the the models uh you know the systems would have projected that alec manoa was going to regress this year just based off of how he got his results in 2022 but i don't know if it would have projected him to regress to this extent i mean this has been rather extreme and uh, I kind of made the case last week. It's been a little bit like, like whack-a-mole every start with him, right? Because you look at him like two starts ago, it was mislocating sliders glove side. And then last start, now he's mislocating fastballs arm side. Uh, and it's just been something different every time out that has been the issue for him. It appears to be mechanical. I wish I was smart enough to tell you what those mechanics 
mechanics are specifically and what the magic bullet is for him to get out of what uh, he's going through right now. And I imagine there isn't one just quick fix. It's probably a, a whole matrix of things. But I do think the results of what Alec Manoa is going through mechanically on the mound is that ultimately he's just missing by way too much outside the zone and hitters aren't going to be swinging at pitches in the areas that Manoa is missing in. That's why you're seeing the walks. And then that's why you're seeing some pitches being kind of eased and grooved over the plate. And at the velocity and movement that Manoa is throwing those pitches, they're getting hammered. Yeah, it's, it's really been tough for Manoa. And I think that clearly he doesn't know where it's going. Um, He has not been consistently able to put the ball where he wants. And so we've seen that, with walks, which you're walking 15 guys in 19 and a third innings, that is problematic. No starting pitcher in the major leagues does that because if you start doing that, you're not in the rotation for long. Teams just do not put that in the rotations. Now, this should be hopefully understood. It's very early. There's a lot of time left for Alec Manoa to recover from this and a lot of pathways for him to do that. But just looking at what he's done so far, the command has not been there. He's had a couple hit batters, even pitches within the strike zone. He's not locating where he wants to. Like the slider to Christian Battencourt on the weekend, it ends up catching too much of the plate. He hits it for a home run. So the location is the easiest thing to identify as an observer. As you say, there seems to be some mechanical stuff going on here. Alec Manoa said after his last start that it's not mechanical. John Schneider said it's not mechanical. I look at the pitch chart of all those arm side misses with the fastball and it's kind of hard to believe there's not something mechanical there, but they're saying it's not mechanical. So there's a lot of moving pieces here. There's also the challenge of left-handed batters and the fact that he is not getting lefties out. So there's really a lot going on here with Alec Manoa. Yeah, I don't, I'm not buying it. I think it, it, it has to be mechanical what's going on here. And like, to me, that's actually a good thing. Like, I don't think it's just like a major degradation in his stuff or that he's hurt or that he's not good anymore or anything like that. Like, I just think that there's something in his delivery that's sort of plaguing him and leading to these wild misses right now. And like, that could be so many different things, right? Like that, that could be lower half, that could be his legs and, you know, like how he's moving, how sinking in his hips or could be like his stride length down the mound right very tall dude so is he like finding that consistent landing points um you know you see him so often like stomping at that kind of landing area on the mound is is it something there could be his upper body right like could be his torso could be staying closed could be directionality to the plate could be his eyes like it could be his sights, honestly. Like that's part of it is like where you're looking and like where you're aiming with your eyes and like just how everything is moving in concert um, with one another. When you're talking about like head, shoulders, torso, hips, lower half. And like I said, I'm not a pitching coach. I I, I can't like diagnose exactly what it is. Um, a pitcher's delivery is it's so intricate and it's such a fine motor skill. Um, so it could be just the littlest thing that's flawed and that throws the entire operation off. But once you figure out what that little thing is or what those little things are, you can figure that out in between your outings in your bullpen with Pete Walker and with 
Jeff Ware and with Blue Jays analysts whose names you don't know who are you know feeding ideas down to the coaching staff. And then Alec Manoa can go out to the mound his next start with some new cues and some reminders for himself. And he can just be more synced up and he can kind of find that that those mechanics that not only led him to results he had in 2022, led him to the results he had in spring training. Like that was just weeks ago when like stuff, location, command, like everything was the way it needed to be. Like everything looked like Alec Manoa. And there have been spots in these starts where it's looked like Alec Manoa, like the pitch to Josh Lowe with two out in the fifth against the Rays, right? Which was like just a beautiful slider. And like credit to Lowe for holding off on it, right? Checked his swing, didn't swing at a really good two-strike slider. Manoa was like in the dugout. He was like, yep, got him. See you later. And uh, didn't get the swing, had to go back on the mound. And then ultimately Lowe ends up doubling. Bruhan singled, and then you get that Bethancourt homer that, that you were talking about. So one thing I know about Alec Manoa, he's a worker. One thing I know about Pete Walker and Jeff Ware, the entire Blue Jays pitching group, is that they're good at finding these little inefficiencies and, and ironing these things out and identifying uh, issues. So I, I expect that everyone will figure out what's going on here, and Alec Manoa will get back to looking like himself. Yeah, I think that's a fair expectation. Like, I think that to expect that Alec Manoa is going to be good is reasonable. couple things there. So one, I guess, more numbers and one a bit more on the mental side of things. But looking at the numbers, Manoa is facing a lot of lefties. This isn't new. Uh, teams have stacked lefties against him pretty consistently the last couple of years. But this year, he's really struggling. Uh, lefties are hitting him really hard, and that is contributing to his struggles. You look at the changeup which is a pitch that he throws only to lefties. It's not a pitch he ever throws right on right. And that pitch has not been very effective. Then again, he's only thrown it 48 times. So, you know, are we going to read so much into those 48 changeups and say that that is like definitively a problem for Alec Manoa as he moves forward? I'm not inclined to do that. I'm inclined to say, let's zoom out. Let's let's see what he can do with that changeup on his next 48 and on the 48 after that. That could impact how he does against lefties that can impact everything. So, you know, that's one kind of numbers-based point. And then the other thing I'd just throw out there is like, this is a a pitcher right now who's very frustrated. You know, setting aside the mechanics, setting aside the results, he's struggling in the major leagues for the first time right now. He is clearly uh, very frustrated. Talking to him after that start uh, in Toronto against the Rays on Sunday, it's basically as frustrated as I've ever seen Alec Manoa. And so that's not an easy thing to try to rebound from. Obviously, that'll motivate him as he moves ahead here. But that's another side of this as he's trying to sort this out is this is really weighing on him. And it's a new experience. Whereas for Kevin Gosman, he struggles. Well, he's actually struggled a lot in the major leagues before. With the change up, like I agree with you that it's such an important pitch for him against lefties. And I think you'll see the results on it improve as his command with his fastball and slider improve like i think he's been so inconsistent with the command of those other two pitches which are really necessary to set up the change up right to sequence it um that that is then bleeding into like the effectiveness of his changeup, but it's a pitch he clearly has to trust against lefties. We've seen Jose Barrios have success this year, trusting his changeup against lefties. It's such an important pitch, like similar thing with Barrios lineup, like clubs just stack lefties against him, And he's actually used that changeup really effectively against them. You see Alec Manoa trying to do that 
um, against the lefties that he's facing. And I actually think his change of command has actually been really good. Like has actually been really solid. He's not leaving them over the heart of the plate. And when you mention those results against it, it's three singles. Those are the results. He's given up three singles on his change of no extra base hits. Like he's not striking out a ton of dudes with it. But like you said, he's only thrown it 48 times. He hasn't thrown it a ton. But I do think that as his command improves with his fastball and his slider, the change of effectiveness will improve in turn. He doesn't have to do anything with the change up. He just has to address the heater and the breaking ball and the change up will will follow and then the other yep. thing we kind of forget about Magnoa as well is that he went through like a little bit of a similar phase to this last year like last summer when the stuff was down a little bit like the command wasn't quite as good as it had been there are a few like four walk outings in there like i'm talking like through like summer summer like hot july and august he's pitching like his first full season in the big leagues and like pushing that innings pitch total like up into unprecedented heights every time he's out and he did such a good job of arresting damage at that time and not allowing his outings to spiral out of control that we didn't really talk about it and nobody really worried about it because the results weren't there sticking us, you know, like the results so often like lead people to their conclusions, right? But actually the process for Alcmanoa wasn't great in the summer and then he surged late in the season and looked tremendous in September. So the fact that he's been through like a period like this before should I think allow him to get through this one as well. So that's where I think like, I don't think he's struggling for the first time, honestly, in his career. Like I think he's been through this before. I just think the results are different now. So we're noticing it in a different way now, but I do think he's been here before. I think this is a heightened example of that. Just given the way last year ended against the Mariners opening day, didn't go well, you know, home opener didn't go well. I feel like those starts like combined, it's a bit of a bad run for Alec Manoa in a way that there are more eyeballs on it. There's a bit more pressure on it than there would have been in the dog days of last summer. But I think you're right to say that he's, let's say he started 45 games, whatever the case. They haven't all been gems. There have been times where he's had to make adjustments in between. And that's what he has to do now. And, and I think it's a reasonable guess to say that he can probably make those adjustments. I really don't lump that wildcard outing into it, though, because that was like, what, six, seven months ago now? Like, we were different people then. Like, I don't think there's any carryover from when you go like, what, early October to now we're in mid-April. That's a massive amount of time. So I just don't even lump that in. And even if you want to go back and look at that outing, it was like one bad inning the first and it was really just like two bad hitters and suarez and and rally like two like manoa being bad to two hitters at the worst possible time beyond that alec manoa was alec manoa in that outing so i don't even lump that into this to this issue right now yeah i mean we'll see um what what the solutions look like for manoa um but i i think that once he is able to have a bit of success on the mound then maybe that pressure will ease and things will start to flow a bit more easily. Yeah, even just going back and looking at it right now, Manoa is like getting strikeouts in the second inning, routinely getting ground balls in that outing. Like it's an under discussed thing that like Alec Manoa just looked like himself after that that weird span early in that wild card outing. But again, the results lead people to their conclusions because Luis Castillo was just untouchable on that day. Like I don't care. Like you put the twenty seven Yankees in there. I don't care who's hitting. Nobody was touching Luis Castillo that day. He was as dominant as you're ever going to see him. Uh, Let's step away. But when we come back, we should talk 
bats because all we did was talk pitching. In the first half, so we'll talk Blue Jays offense and so much more, and we continue on at the letters. Listen to At The Letters ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. It continues on At The Letters, Arden Zwelling, Ben Nicholson-Smith. Our producers are Nick Andrade and Christian Ryan. You can send us an email at the letters at sportsnet.ca. Ben, I got my Fangrass leaderboards open again, and I am uh, playing around here with the old uh, order by uh, who's the best in baseball at these things. Uh, so, batting average, Matt Chapman, second, behind only Luis Arise. On base percentage, Matt Chapman, second, behind only Luis Arise. Matt Chapman, slugging percentage, first, Wade runs created plus, first, wins above replacement, first. Matt Chapman is having, without like hyperbole, without exaggeration, an MVP level start to the season. And now he sends one to right field, hit it well. And this one is gone. Second of the inning for the Blue Jays and the second in as many games for Matt Chapman. Boy, has he changed his program what? He Without a doubt. And I think you look at the barrel rate, you look at the exit velo, you look at basically any metric that we have available to us, and Matt Chapman is right at the top. So that's great. I mean, it's obviously contributed to the Blue Jays being where they are, above 500, despite some of those pitching issues that we've discussed in the first part of the podcast and as you move ahead of course he's not going to continue with this level but there aren't a lot of players who actually can reach that even for three weeks and I think that for Chapman to show to demonstrate that he can play at that level for three weeks it's honestly a different standard than what we saw in 2022 and he was a very good player but he was not an MVP candidate and a lot of his value was with the glove and the position wasn't necessarily with a bat at the level that he is now. So, you know, for these underlying uh, metrics to be reinforcing what we're seeing with our eyes, uh, for all of these results to be happening so consistently week after week, it's a great sign for the Jays. And and clearly, you know, Matt Chapman is is central to what the Blue Jays are trying to do here and, and a huge part of their hopes in 2023. And it's just every bit of these results are earned. Like there's no flares in there. There's no like weird infield singles, dinks and doinks. Like it's just everything is just absolutely punished. <laughs> Line drives. It's like it's not swinging at balls. It's swinging at strikes. Uh, it's punishing those strikes. Like it's squaring up the the good pitches that his approach leads him to getting because Matt Chapman is not expanding and he's been very discerning and selective at the plate. His strikeout and walk are like relatively similar to what they've been throughout his career. He's always been a good guy at kind of recognizing balls and strikes where things kind of went awry in the last couple of years was he just wasn't either he wasn't punishing mistakes as well as as he had prior or he was kind of pulling them a little bit too much but you mentioned it with like the barrel rate that is up substantially he's leading MLB in barrels with 17 uh Brian Reynolds and Ryan Mountcastle are second with 12 so that's a five barrel gap like that is massive and like this this kind of approach and like this process really shows up 
in uh, his ex-WOBA, so his expected weighted on base average. And I know when people hear like that line of five letters, like that weird acronym, they kind of roll their eyes. But essentially, like ex-WOBA just strips luck out of the equation and just says like, hey, uh, George Springer, I don't care that you hit like 1,200 feet of fly ball outs, <laughs> uh, you know, against Houston the other night. I'm going to give you credit for like squaring up good pitches to hit and hitting them really hard and really far, regardless of whether they fall into an outfielder's glove or not. So with Matt Chapman, like, yeah, he's like crushing pitches, hitting them very hard, very high rates of speed at like great launch angles to produce results. And that's why his ex-WOBA leads baseball at 517, like well clear of uh, like nobody else is over 500, right? So I, I think that stats like that really tell the story of how it's not just results. It's not just outcomes for Matt Chapman. It's excellent process as well it's kind of process where like if you continue to not swing at balls only swing at strikes and like absolutely demolish those strikes when you do all of a sudden you're Aaron Judge and you're winning an MVP yeah he's locked in he's locked in right now I mean you mentioned that uh was it 517 the ex-woba which is scaled to uh basically on base percentage so a pretty solid ex-woba would be like 330 and he's at 517. Like he's just leaving everyone else behind in the dust. And, you know, again, this is this is not the kind of level that any team can expect from any player. This is just, you know, one of those hot three-week stretches that no one can sustain. But it's really impressive. And I think I honestly am adjusting my expectations for Matt Chapman a little higher than what they would have been three weeks ago. I think that these three weeks are showing me that he's locked in at the plate, that he's healthy, that his swing changes are working, um, that he's mentally in the right place, physically everything's clicking. This is enough for me to say that I would actually expect a little more from Matt Chapman than I probably would have uh, a month ago or three weeks ago. Oh yeah, the swing changes are working. The toe tap is is working for him as we sit here. So we're recording on April 19th, Wednesday. So through Tuesday's games, through April 18th, Matt Chapman has eight opposite field hits that includes monday's homer off christian javier uh that includes tuesday's homer off jose urquidy so eight opposite field hits through matt chapman's first 70 plate appearances last year 2022 matt chapman had 18 opposite field hits over the entirety of the regular season we're here through 70 plate appearances he already has eight Last season, Matt Chapman didn't get his eighth opposite field hit until May 29th. It took him 180 plate appearances to get his eighth opposite field hit in 2022. Here we are in 2023. He already has eight through 70. To me, that's the biggest demonstration of how the swing changes are working for him. Yeah, and to have that offensive player in the top half of the Jays order, I mean, you go Springer, uh, Vlad, Bo. To have Varsho in that mix, to have Chapman in that mix. I thought going into the season that they might take a step back offensively as a group with the loss of Teoscar Hernandez and Lourdes Gurriel Jr. And I thought that could have been okay on balance because you're getting better defensively. But if Chapman and Varsho are hitting at this level, then you're actually probably taking a step or, you know, holding even offensively, which is great because they were a very, very good offensive team last year. Offense was never their issue in 2022. So if you kind of are are able to sustain that 
then you're going to be able to do a lot of different things as a team uh, because you can afford to have a Kevin Kiermaier hitting in the ninth spot. You can afford to have you know, a Santiago Espinal or a Whit Merrifield in the eighth spot, maybe not producing as much offensively, but helping you out defensively. That's why I love X Woba. Like it just does a really good job of stripping away all the noise, <laughs> essentially. And it is a very simple way to look at like what a hitter's expected outcomes should be, like how well they're striking the ball, how consistently they're barreling up good pitches to hit, swinging at good pitches to hit, not chasing, not expanding the zone, having a good approach. So you take that that major league leaderboard and you line it up by x woba and matt chapman is first by an absolute mile and then bo bichette is in seventh with 460 and vladimir guerrero jr is in 19th with 433 like i'm talking about right now a uh, qualified sample of 191 hitters and the blue jays have three in the top 20 like that's massive because if you can maintain that approach over time results are going to follow like we've seen that that type of approach like correlates extremely strongly with results that's why hitter or teams chase players like these like that's why teams want to roster these guys and teams look at stuff like this because they know that if you give players like these enough runway like they're going to be very very productive and they're going to be all-stars and they're going to contend for mvp awards like you just look at like the top of the ex-woba leaderboard this year already and it's guys it's like your kyle tuckers and your freddie freemans and your acunas and your goldschmidt's like your rutschmans it's those kinds of players and the blue jays have Bo and vlad in that top 20 along with chapman uh you put george springer atop a batting order as well and uh yeah you're gonna have a, a pretty good offense to your point for sure. Now, it would be nice if they could get some more production from some of those uh, players lower in the order, if they could get a bit more from a Santiago Espinal, from a Brandon Belt, from a Kevin Biggio, from a Danny Jansen. Um, clearly, those guys are capable of more than what they've shown so far this season. Jansen, on a per-plate appearance basis, was great for the Blue Jays, one of their best players in 2022. Obviously, hasn't happened so far this year. We all know that guys like Brandon Belt have done it historically in their career, even if Belt, to this point in his Blue Jays career, three weeks in, has had one good game. You know there's more potential there. So, you know, if they could get some of those guys going, all of a sudden you've got the potential for a really deep offensive group. And then that can start making up for some of these poor starts that we're seeing. And it buys them a little bit of time in case a Barrios has a bad start, in case Bassett has, you know, another outing where he just can't get on the same page with his catcher, whatever the case, a bullpen blow up, a deeper offense, an even deeper offense. And I know it's a little bit greedy right now, but. If you do have that, you're able to afford some of those uh, struggles in other aspects of your team. Just sticking on Bo and, and Vlad for a second with Guerrero, like his swing decisions have been elite. His pitch recognition has been elite. He's just like going through another one of those weird little stretches where he is missing like he's getting his pitch and he's recognizing that he's getting his pitch and he's executing his swing on it and he's missing it by like just a fraction and ending up with like a very long fly ball instead of a homer or he's like miss hitting home runs to the opposite field like he did off of I think it was off Urquidy right on on Tuesday it's just one of those weird little like stretches for him that we've seen before and you'll you know he's going through it because you see him afterwards like after he miss hits these pitches like slamming the bat and super frustrated because he did everything right he didn't swing at balls he swung at strikes he thought 
I'm going to get this pitch. And then he got that pitch. And then it was just like a very small little timing thing in his swing that was off. But I promise you, provided that like his swing decisions and his pitch recognition and his approach remains constant over time, like results are going to come in an absolutely massive way. And then when it comes to Bo, who is just like very quietly been raking at an elite level this year like we're talking like a top 10 player by Wade runs created plus this season um yes it's obviously like the base hits Bo's a guy who can lead the league in hits as he did the last two years and he's a guy who can like win a batting title as he might this year we'll see um but he's also a guy who's just like making some very real adjustments over his time in in the majors and has really adapted in an interesting way it's just been like fascinating to watch him adjust to the league watch pitchers adjust back then watch Bo adjust back to those adjustments like you look at last season and it's like we have these crazy misconceptions about Bo Bichette where we talk about how oh you know he does the most damage with two strikes no he doesn't like he doesn't do great damage with two strikes at all and people think oh well you know Bo like turning on those fastballs and barreling those heaters and it's like no he didn't in 2022 like Bichette crushed breaking balls and crushed off-speed pitches like that's where he did the majority of his damage against he actually had worse numbers against fastballs uh in 2022 well lo and behold this season Boba Shett's seen a ton of fastballs he's seen like 57 percent heaters and he's made the adjustment and he's barreling them up he's putting them in play and he's getting his hits he's hitting 444 against fastballs this year with a 689 slug he has better numbers this year against fastballs than he does against breaking balls and off speed when last year it was the complete opposite so like Bo is just making very real adjustments to the way that he's being pitched he has like such a preternatural ability to get his barrel to pitches all around the zone and various different types of pitches and styles of pitching like uh you know coaches would call that barrel control he just gets the sweet spot of his bat to so many areas in the strike zone his timing is impeccable his hands and his bat speed are elite he just has a very special ability to like impact a wide array of pitches with his barrel and you're seeing that show up this year and that's where these guys are just so hard to pitch and have been really for for quite some time um but we're seeing it on full display this year but you know flat jr you hang a breaking ball to him he's gonna crush it like you said Bo. He's been on breaking balls for for years, and he can do tons of damage. But you try to beat them with fastballs, I mean, Bo can kind of spray those down the right field line until he gets one he likes, and then he can do some damage. Vladdy, I mean, we've seen what Vladdy can do against fastballs, whether it's in on the hands from Garrett Cole, you know, whether it's uh, out over the plate. Of course, he can crush a fastball out over the plate. Um, These guys can do it all. So there's no easy way to pitch them. You know, you hear it from managers as they come in to Rogers Center kind of discussing this team and it's like yeah this is a really really tough team to pitch you know this is a really good team you hear that from AJ Hinch you hear that from Kevin Cash just in the last week these guys are the center of that and it's just there's no real solution you know you can have a game plan you can execute it to some extent of course they're going to get out more often than not that's the way baseball works but these two hitters like you know, it's it's akin to facing Tatis when he gets back tomorrow and and Bogarts and and Soto and, and Machado in San Diego. It's akin to facing Stanton when he's healthy and Judge in New York. Like different types of hitters potentially in some cases, but there's just no comfortable way to do it. Olsen and Acuna in Atlanta. Like it's just there's no easy way to go through this lineup. And Vlad and Bo 
prime seasons. These guys, like it's sometimes easy to forget because we get so zoomed in on the day-to-day, but these guys are franchise players, some of the better hitters that we've seen in decades, um, certainly some of the better homegrown players that we've seen essentially since Sean Green and Carlos Delgado and Vernon Wells, and they're in their prime right here doing really impressive things. So it's definitely tough to shut them down. Right on cue, he hits one out of the ballpark. Well, that's going to make him feel better. (laughs) Sorry, Vladdy, we never doubted you. We knew it was only a matter of time. He was listening to us. Yeah, boy, where's his power? Okay, I'll show you some power, boys. That was awesome. Exwoba, another useful way of thinking about Juan Soto, who who you mentioned there, because you can like look at Soto's numbers this year. He's hitting one seventy five, right? Like he's got a three sixty five slug. It's like what the hell is going on with this guy? And then you look deeper, and it's he's walking all the time. He's not striking out much. Like he's making great swing decisions, uh, and and he's making exceptional contact. He's barreling the ball. He's just been really really unlucky this year Juan Soto so you look at the ex-WOBA and it's like up over 400 it's like a top 30 mark across baseball because like the process has been tremendous the outcomes just haven't been there for him he's been very unlucky but when you strip away some of that flukiness some of that luck you actually see oh this guy's doing everything that he's done throughout his career and everything that he needs to do going forward to be elite it's just like some some weird baseball flukiness that is befelling his more traditional stats. Uh, and that's why like some of those advanced metrics and that stack ass stuff is so, so valuable. So you mentioned it. Like the Blue Jays knock in a ton from the bottom of their order. Like um they're getting like I don't know what Kevin Kiermeyer's batting average is down if he's down to, you know, three fifty now or something like that. But like aside from him. By the way, look at the ex-WOBA for Kevin Kiermeyer. I haven't, but I promise you that it doesn't support the results that he's seen to this point. But anyway, outside of Kevin Kiermeyer, the Blue Jays not getting a ton from from the bottom half when you think about some of those sort of like bench pieces, the complementary pieces in this lineup. So you think about your Kevin Biggios and Santiago Espinal, Brandon Belt, Danny Jansen, like those guys have all been scuffling. What do you think the Blue Jays can do going forward just in order to get a bit more production out of the the bottom of this lineup yeah it's it's a tough one i mean you have to ultimately just ride it out i mean these guys are important players on this team you're obviously not going to option them you can't bench them all you need some of them playing at every time so you're dependent on these guys they're an important part of the team i think you keep trotting them out there brandon belt i mean i think you keep playing him against righties right now I would not be eager to get him in there against lefties, but play him against righties and see if he can get it going. Again, the track record is intriguing enough. The results are not good. That's that's pretty clear. But the track record is intriguing enough um, that you want to see if he can have another three-hit game and kind of get a little bit of momentum going. So I'd start him against most righties for now. And then with Jansen, obviously you want to get him going. You want him to be in that mix. He will be in that mix. And... Biggio, Espinal, they're going to have to pick their spots. I mean, Merrifield is hitting better than those two right now. So I would play Merrifield more at a time that he's hitting better, certainly against lefties. You're going to see Merrifield in there. Against righties, I'd use Biggio a fair amount. Um, But basically, for me, the playing time mix would be pretty similar to how it would have been going into the season for these players, with the exception of I would probably dial back a little bit on Brandon Belt and maybe try to get Jansen in there a bit more, try to get Merrifield in there maybe a little bit more than he would have projected to just because he is hitting better than some of those guys. Yeah, I think that you do what you said. You stick to the approach. Like you stick to what they were trying to do coming into this season and let's put those guys in in positions to be successful. And it's like worked out in some cases. Like it's worked out with 
Whit Merrifield so far to this point. Blue Jays have put him in positions to be successful, and he has been. It's funny, like, the Blue Jays think about this stuff with, with like, quite a bit of foresight. Like, they think ahead series by series by series. Sometimes you see some bullpen deployments in this, like, Houston Astro series right now that kind of leave you scratching your head. That's because another guy who might have been a better matchup in that spot, the Blue Jays are thinking, we're really going to need this guy in the Bronx on the weekend. So we got to get this guy his rest now. Like, when the Blue Jays went to Kansas City... And the first game against the Royals, this is Whit Merrifield's return to Kansas City where he'd played like six and a half years, like the, you know, his entire career and he'd like he led the league in hits there and in steals and things like that. He was going to get a reception and they're going to do a whole video board thing and all this stuff. And he was in the lineup for the first game back. And that's like goes completely against what, you know, your kind of old school manager would do. You put that guy in the lineup. That guy's got to be starting. You got to give that guy his flowers and his moment. But the reason why the Blue Jays didn't put him in the lineup that day was because they had a ton of lefties coming up like they had a ton of lefties coming up from the Royals and against the Angels on the weekend they were in a situation where they're forecasting ahead and Whit Merrifield was about to play six straight games and this is still a 34 year old and it's still early in the season so the Blue Jays were like well let's get him his day off at the beginning of this series because he's going to need it because we're going to be deploying him very frequently over the next six days with like day games after night games mixed in there as well. So like the Blue Jays think about like these things a lot when it comes to bullpen deployment and players who are kind of in and out of the lineup like Biggio, like Espinal looking ahead. Like there's a lot of that going on. So I think that with the deployment, you just continue to find the matchups that you feel like are ideal for Biggio and Espinal and Jansen and Belt and Merrifield to a certain degree. And you just trust that over time, like that process will lead to results. It hasn't so far for guys like Biggio and Espinal and Jansen and, and Belt. But I do think that you're seeing some little signs of it. Like you look at that walk that Brandon Belt drew on Tuesday against, uh, was it against Arkady? Yeah, it was against Arkady. Belt fell behind 0-2 and then worked like an eight-pitch walk. And then from there, it was like that weird little hit and run that John Schneider said wasn't a hit right. and run <laughs> with Merrifield going the opposite way. And then Espinal went the opposite way. And then you bring up the top of the order and it, you know, I think Bo drove in a couple. So you're seeing little signs of it. I thought that belt walk was really, really good. So the pitch recognition is still really good for him. Um, I think you just need to give it a bit more time to play out and that given ideal matchups and deployment, Espinal, Biggio, Jansen are going to be better going forward. Out of all those players, is there one that kind of jumps out to you as maybe the most likely or is there one that you have kind of the most confidence in? Hey, end of the year, we're looking at the baseball reference. We're looking at, you know, sorting by OPS plus, whatever the case. And you have confidence that one of those guys will be you know, where he kind of should be, where where we thought he would be going into the season? I don't know. Where did you think Brandon Belt would be going into the season? <laughs> I probably would have said that he would have like a 110 OPS plus, mostly by playing against right-handed pitching. But my level of confidence in that has has deteriorated. No, that's the one. I would say I think Brandon Belt, just based on the track record, just based on the approach, he still clearly sees pitches really well and makes really good swing decisions. And, uh, you know, the eggs of Elos were there in spring when he was making better contacts. It's been a little baffling that he hasn't made contact on good pitches to hit early this season. He's kind of going through it a little bit clearly. But I think that, like, after the uh, perhaps, you know, the IL stint that comes in, in May or June, uh, the, the Brandon Belt's going to return and look a lot more like, 
Brandon Belt. Like the track record's just too extensive, and some of the signs are still there that he can still recognize pitches really well. That that makes me confident that he'll get back to that like maybe not one ten, maybe one oh five way it runs created plus uh, that that you were uh, sort of expecting coming into this year. I'll throw Danny Jansen in. I think out of all those hitters, um, and I'm not counting Kirk in this, by the way, because Kirk's kind of been solid. But I think out of the Espinal, Biggio, Belt um, group uh, and Jansen, I think Jansen is the one who gives me the most confidence that he can get back to a place where, you know, he's an above average hitter. Like that that OPS plus is over 100 in some form. I think I could see that from Jansen this year. Quickly touching on the bullpen, uh, is it safe to say going forward that if there is a, a leverage situation against you know some tough right-handed hitters coming up, seventh inning, Blue Jays ahead by a run or two, uh, yeah, tough righties coming up, that John Schneider, Pete Walker are more likely right now to turn to Zach Pop in that situation than Anthony Bass? Yeah. I think more likely. I don't think it's an automatic lock that Zach Pop comes in when Aaron Judge is up and stands out now. But, you know, when when the Jays need a, a pitcher in a situation like that, because it could be a Jimmy Garcia, you know, it could be someone else. But if it's high leverage, I don't think it's Anthony Bass right now. I mean, he's clearly scuffling. The Jays clearly don't love where he's at against left-handed pitchers. We saw them intentionally walk a left-handed batter with Bass on the mound um, this past week. Um, the results have not been there for Bass. And in contrast to that, Pop is pitching great. I mean, you look at the results, there's a lot of strikeouts. He's keeping runs off the board. He is not allowing hits. It's only been three hits allowed all season long. Um, throwing that sinker at 95. And it's really interesting because he's throwing the slider more. So both of these pitches are pitches that have a ton of vertical break, a ton of sink. The slider sinks, the sinker sinks. It's really nasty. I mean, you, you can look up the videos on Pitching Ninja and Zach Pop's stuff is is moving a whole lot this year. So I think with good reason, he would be ahead of Anthony Bass if you needed some big outs at this point. Yeah, we talked about in spring, Zach Pop just doing some things this year that he wouldn't have done prior, like front hip two seamers to lefties. He's throwing that pitch now and that is not something that he would have thrown at all. Last year, uh, sliders just in general, <laughs> like Zach Pop so seldom used his slider last year, and he's using it a lot more now. He's clearly gained a lot of confidence in the pitch, and he's clearly like he is like it's amazing. I saw him pick a back door to a lefty the other day, and I'm blanking on who it was, but like, yeah, just a little if he's gonna land a backdoor slider for a strike to a left-handed hitter my goodness like that's going to open things up for zach pop so and then he can go back foot with it obviously to a lefty and, and its utility against righties is obvious too so i just yeah just that adding that second pitch like that's helping his sinker play up even more that's helping his sinker get more swing and miss it didn't his sinker didn't get a ton of swing and miss in prior years because it was all he threw so hitters yeah. kind of like were zoning up on it and they weren't making great contact off of it because it's got like turbo sink but they weren't whiffing on it either because they didn't really have to guard against anything else but now that they have to guard against a slider as well something that will move differently they can't just zone up the sinker and that's going to lead to him getting more swing and miss more whiffs him being more effective him being the guy that you're seeing right now still some questions i would say on the quality of stuff on a back-to-back 
Uh, that's something that Pop was tested with in spring. Uh, and I, I remember you and I were both there yeah. in Tampa, right, yep. against the Yankees. And I think it was Judge and Rizzo who both took him deep. And it was like Pop came back on a back-to-back and the velo was down a little bit and the quality of the stuff was down a little bit and he paid the price. So can he maintain his stuff in back-to-backs? We'll see. The Blue Jays are going to be testing him with that in some big spots because he has earned a lot more confidence from them going forward. It's going to be really fascinating to see how that plays out. Yeah, he's been really good. And um, it's it's interesting, too, because, you know, you mentioned spring and it kind of jogs my mind that he was the last guy to make this team. He was the last reliever to make this bullpen. And he's the only one of this group who has options. So that means that it's kind of an immovable group. It's why you haven't seen any bullpen moves to this point. They've just swapped a Luplau and, and uh, Nathan Lucas has been the only roster move that the Jays have made, which in itself is kind of remarkable. But, you know, as for Pop... You look at, and we've talked about baseball savant a bunch in this podcast, you look at the leaderboards for sinkers, for sliders, pop is on those when it comes to the most movement. So what he's doing right now is not because he's getting lucky. He has these results because his pitches are moving a lot. It's a it's a mix that is confusing for hitters and it's really working. So I think if you're the Jays, you know, roll with this. You don't need more. You don't need more of a sample, uh, small samples when it comes to stuff like pitches on how they're moving and how fast they're going they're pretty significant so uh, i think the jays have every reason to be really intrigued by zach pop and to continue to put him out there in some big situations yeah someone with the jays said to me in spring you know we think that uh, zach pop could be our clay holmes and i was yeah. kind of like wow like that's a, <laughs> that's quite a comp uh yeah. but i don't know Maybe, right? Like, it's kind of looking kind of Clay Holmes-ish right now. Very. When you t- Right? Holmes is like, what, like 70-30 sinker slider? And that, you know, Pop's been uh, probably a bit more sinker than slider, but like similar like kind of characteristics to it's those 50, pitches. 50-50 now. Is it 50 He's throwing the slider a lot. Holy smokes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm sure that'll change over, over time and it'll get closer to 70-30. But still, yeah, like to my point, like yeah, he's looking he's looking Holmes-ish right yeah. now. And that's like a huge development for, for the Blue Jays. I mean, like these, it's funny how, you know, with relievers being the small samples of small samples, like the, things can change on a dime. Things can change so quickly. Like you look at a guy like Anthony Bass, who was like legit one of like a top 10 reliever for the last two seasons i mean like as consistent as as anyone i mean you look at you look at his 2022 one and a half era and a fip of three so a little bit of luck in there but like still really really good um and the difference this year has been the sinker command to me like i think he's just leaving some fastballs in some really bad spots and, and getting crushed um I think his slider is still really good and, and really effective. And I think if anything, he should actually probably use it a little bit more than he has been to this point until he kind of gets his, his fastball command back a little bit. But I think things will come around for Anthony Bass and he'll kind of get out of this tough spot that he's in right now where he's kind of giving up runs every outing because his fastball command isn't great. Uh, and I think that with a bigger sample, he'll get back to looking like himself. But I think to get that bigger sample, you're probably going to see him pitching in some of those lower leverage spots that a Zach Pop would have been pitching in to start the season. Yeah, I agree with all that. I think that, you know, none of this means that Anthony Bass can't be a useful pitcher. There are going to be runs of tough right-handed pitching. Um, even if he is primarily someone the Jays want to deploy against righties, you're going to see that. You're going to see that in big games um, and he can really help them. So, it, you know, if Bass is 
the guy who's struggling in your bullpen, they still have enough guys who are going really well. Jordan Romano, you know, was able to take a comebacker off his ribs and still come out and get a four-out save a few days later. Um, Swanson, Jimmy Garcia, they have a lot of pathways to close out games right now. Bass doesn't have to be a part of that, but if he can get back to that point, then that will make things even easier for John Schneider. Two things as we go, because you mentioned Jordan Romano, and I did want to find a way to weasel this in somehow. He's throwing his sliders so much this year. I think he's throwing like 70% sliders, and I don't think that's always going to be the case. But I do think it is a demonstration of how important that pitch is for him and how he doesn't throw his slider too much like you'll hear that a lot that Jordan Romano is too reliant on his slider why is he so slider heavy uh because the slider is like exceptional it's really really good he commands it really well he can change his grips on it to get more of like a land it for a strike slider or more of an expand swing and miss slider against the Astros in the four out save on Tuesday I think it was 14 of his 15 pitches were sliders and he just used it so effectively and had guys swinging and missing at it and he was picking corners with it and called strikes like he was using it all around the zone he's just so confident with it and his he can command it so well and it just moves so drastically that hitters don't bail it up when he throws it his slider's his best pitch so like yes i understand that he throws 99 with his fastball that fastball is only going to be more effective the more that he throws his slider and proves that he can land it for strikes and use it effectively like i think that jordan romano should keep throwing his slider as much as he is right now because it is working for him it's a great pitch yeah no complaints about the results for the jays i mean to get uh what he's been doing so far they're very happy with it and then the other bit was you had mentioned like the Blue Jays lack of roster moves. Uh, you're right. Like it's incredible that the Blue Jays have had the issues that they've had with their starting rotation where it's like a five, five, five ERA from their starters and, uh, you know, like the, the, the blow up outings that they've had and that they haven't had to make a roster move in the bullpen. That speaks to how, you know, you've had starters who have gotten rocked in the first inning and still found a way to give the Blue Jays some innings and not to give them those outings where it's like, I only got five outs and you got to like turn to the bullpen for the other 22. That's pretty remarkable. Also remarkable. The, the luck, the blue Jays have had on the injury side. I mean, you think about it, who's hurt right now, Mitch white and the two Tommy John guys, Hunjin Ryu and uh, Chad, Green. Chad Green, right? Like look across the league and find me a team that doesn't have like a prime, like, you know, two to four win player on the injured list, right? Like you just mentioned it, Stanton with the Yankees, he lands on the injured list with Rodon, with Severino, with Montes, right? The Rays, I mean, Jeffrey Springs just lost to Johnny John, right? Glass now, Siri. Um, man, you look across baseball, like Corey Seager's out, O'Neill Cruz shattered his ankle, Justin Verlander's been out this year. The Red Sox, like their one good story this year is Adam Duvall, and then he fractures his wrist. Like the Blue Jays have had some really good injury luck to this point in the season. Well, uh, they are certainly hoping that continues. And uh, I think it's true. you got a team that's it's an older group too, right? Relative to what they've been the last couple of years, relative to a lot of their rivals. Can't take that for granted. So as long as you got that health, you got to bank some wins. Like going, like entering the season, would you have said, you know, if I had said, hey, Ben, the Blue Jays are going to go the first 18 games. They're going to go through like April 19th without making like a, a move in their bullpen and without making a move outside of just flip-flopping the 26th man who doesn't play. 
Oh, it's it's best case scenario. That's what yeah. you want, right? Like you and and you know, with due respect to Jordan Luplo and and Nathan Lucas, they're on the edge, edge, edge of this roster, right? So if you're making an exchange, depending on whether you want a righty or lefty bat, that's kind of ideal. It's not like you're swapping out your center fielder. It's not like you're swapping out your ace pitcher. So to this point, um, that's definitely been a contributor to them winning 11 games. Yeah, you're literally just optimizing the very fringe of your roster. Like that's that's the only roster decisions the Blue Jays have had to make. Is like, are we going to face a lot of lefties or a lot of righties? And then that guy's just not going to play anyway because, like, really, the Blue Jays would like to be using that thirteenth position player spot on another pitcher. Ideally, that's what they'd like to be doing. They don't actually want to carry this many position players. No, but the rules they'd take a Jay Jackson or a Nate Pearson. 100 percent and those are two yeah. guys by the way who are like big league relievers at triple oh yeah and pearson yeah. not to go on a huge tangent here but he's throwing 101 last i checked he had struck out 14 and six and a third in triple uh, a like he's he's doing quite well um so they do have options should they need them they just haven't needed them so far no, but like Jay Jackson and A. Pearson are in a lot of big league bullpens across baseball right now. Uh, if they aren't you know, on, on the Blue Jays, who are a, a pretty deep team and have stayed healthy to this point as listeners all over the place knock on any type of fibrous wood that they can uh, find anywhere near themselves uh that's gonna be it for us uh we want to thank you for listening you can email us at the letters at sportsnet.ca i want to thank our producers nick andrade and christian ryan he's ben nicholson smith i'm arden zwelling thank you as always for listening talk to you next time on at the letters